On the show today, I'm joined by two very special guests. First up, Brian Herring, who plays BB-8 in the hit film franchise Star Wars. Then, iconic voice actress Laura Bailey joins me for a chat. They're here thanks to Supernova, who are in Brisbane this weekend with both those guys at Adelaide next weekend. All that and more on today's podcast. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Benjamin Mayer McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and joining me on the show today are two very special guests. Now, they're both here thanks to Supernova Pop Culture Convention. Now, Supernova is a convention for lovers of all things TV, film, and comics. Now, Supernova is in Brisbane this weekend. So, Friday, Saturday, Sunday over in Brisbane, 10th, 11th, and 12th of November. And then Adelaide the following weekend on the 18th and 19th, the Saturday and Sunday only. They've got a fantastic lineup of guests, including Laura Bailey and Brian Herring, who are on the show today, and the iconic uh, Stan Lee and Millie Bobby Brown will also be at those events. Now, first up today is my chat with Laura Bailey, so sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Now, Laura, what inspired you to pursue performing as a career? pursue acting in general? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, it's funny. I was pretty shy as a, as a kid, um, but acting always seemed like so much fun. I remember auditioning for my school's production of Romeo and Juliet when I was very young, and uh, I didn't get a call back. I didn't get cast because my director said she couldn't hear me across the room <laughs> so there was no way I could I could be an actor um but I just kind of learned from there that I had to learn to uh to be a little more outgoing and to speak up a bit more and it was always something that I wanted to get better at um and it just kind of grew throughout high school and college and I realized that uh, I really needed to do this as a career and I just focused on that and pursued it and you're very well known for your voice work. Was that something you naturally gravitated towards as opposed to on-screen acting? No, I didn't fully commit to um, voice acting until I moved out to California about 10 years ago. When I first started, I really thought that what I wanted to do was more film and television. Um, but I moved out to California and was actually exposed to just the sheer amount of voiceover work that there is um, that I hadn't seen back in Texas. There's just so many video games being made and so many cartoons to be a part of. And it, it just opened my eyes to that world a lot more. And, uh, and I realized that that's where my passion was. I just love getting to play in a recording studio. It's interesting, though, because a lot of voice work, or at least the voice work I've done, you're often by yourself, and it's, it's quite isolating work. So how do you ensure that your reactions are natural when often you're not working with any other actors? You know, a lot of it depends on your director um, and trusting them. Um, sometimes you'll have the benefit of having... Uh, you know, the actor that you're doing a scene with, maybe they recorded right before you and they can play their lines as a feeder for yours. Mm -hmm. So um, you can really make sure that the conversation flows in a normal way. Um, 
But actually, more and more work that I'm doing lately has been uh, in group records, which is so much fun um, because, you know, most of the time, purchasing out here will record the uh, group of actors with the whole cast. So, you know, for four hours, we're in the room together and we would just record one episode all at the same time. Um, and more and more video games are actually starting to do that as well. I think because, you know, people are realizing that that dialogue is much better if you're actually responding to somebody and more and more video games are becoming more cinematic. So that, that genuine, honest uh, conversation really affects gameplay. Absolutely. And you've mentioned video games. Now, a lot of our previous guests have complained that recording video game dialogue is exceptionally taxing. How do you find that experience? Um, you know, it's funny. I started in anime. The very first uh, project I ever recorded on was Dragon Ball Z. So I actually lost my voice doing the callbacks for Kid Trunks, which is the character that I played, because it was so taxing. So I think, I, I always call anime kind of like boot camp for actors because it's so intense. Um, so I think uh, it's not quite as, as awful as it could be for me in video games <laughs> because I'm so used to doing Dragon Ball Z fighting reactions. Um, but also, you know, very rarely do I have to record as a monster or a giant robot or anything, which I think is really the most... Uh, painful sort of recording sessions. Um, so I, I luck out being a girl and all um, and avoiding that kind of stuff. Probably the hardest uh, game recording sessions that I've had are for Gears of War because so much of it is, you know, battle call-outs and screaming and grenade launching and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the the developers at the Coalition, Rod Ferguson, um, is they're just so generous and so giving and they know that their dialogue is usually pretty painful that they are great when I'm in the recording booth and you know we give a lot of breaks and are always checking to make sure that you know our voices are holding up and it's it's they've been really kind mm. so when you're going job to job project to project how do you ensure your voice stays vocally healthy when you're using it all the time voiceover session, I make sure to take a sip of water in between almost every single line because keeping your voice hydrated is one of the most important things uh, for making sure you don't, you know, strain it too much. I'll drink honey water just to coat my throat just a little bit more. Um, and just, you know, if, if I've had a really hard session, I get home at night and, you know, luckily, you know, my husband is also a voice actor and he you know, works all the time, and he totally understands. So if we've had a hard recording session, then maybe we don't talk too much in the evening, <laughs> you know, just to let it recover before the next day. And obviously you've worked on anime, video games, and animated series. Do you find uh, any differences between recording voiceovers for the different types of entertainment? recording that you can do because you have to record alone just because you're you're matching timing 
and that's one of the things that are impossible to do with a, a larger group of people. Um, so in those situations, you really are relying on your director. Um, I think in uh, animated series out here, where we're recording in a group, uh, those tend to be pretty uh, fun, wacky sessions because voice actors in general are, are crazy people and funny people, and um, getting a bunch of them in a room together is always just mayhem. So uh, it becomes kind of like a family environment, like a bunch of kids stuck in detention or something when we're recording as a group, which is always a blast. And um, video games are, are moving more and more towards motion capture. So uh, when I'm working on those, I'm, I'm usually on a set in, in our fabulous spandex Velcro outfits. Um, so with those kind of projects, I get to um, fully embody the character and, and act out all of the scenes in, in a way that is similar to theater or cinema. So when you're assigned a character, how do you go about creating and finding a voice for that person? Um, you know, I feel like it kind of comes naturally, uh, depending on the project. You know, if it's anime or something where I, I can see a visual of what that character looks like right away, then it's super fast to find that, that voice. It's just seeing their their body and their face, it, it just kind of comes to you naturally. Um, and then we've cartoons, there's a little more, you know, playtime trying to find what the voice is going to be and where you end up landing on, um, because, you know, it's so much of, of, like, Cartoon Network shows or Nickelodeon shows, they're just, like, so wacky that um, it's almost like nowadays if you you come up with a voice that you're not sure about, that's going to be the one that, that they end up liking the most because they like it to not be too polished. Because you're so prolific with voice acting in particular, do you ever worry about doubling up voices? You know, you've done this voice for a different character before and people are going to recognise it as you as opposed to the character? Um, not usually because um, even if, you know, characters have similar sounds uh, vocally, I feel like every character has their own personality. So um, even with that same texture or, or vocal range, the way that they, um, you know, say their lines are, are different. Um, and I, I feel like more and more roles that I'm, I'm getting cast in are even closer to my own range just because so much of video games is going more and more towards, you know, the cinematic reads and a lot of times they just will cast me based on work I've previously done or something. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I tend not to worry too much about that, but um, I guess if every role sounded the same, then I would start to worry. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I haven't run into that too much. <laughs> now, in addition to all your voice work, you also, you're also involved in a massively popular Dungeons & Dragons series, where did your love of the game stem from? Well, I've always been a fan of RPGs in general. I always played uh, role-playing games and video games, but I have never done any tabletop gaming before we started this this campaign. Um, my friend Liam O'Brien, who's on the show, uh, got a group of us together of just friends to play a short game of Dungeons & Dragons um, where we would just 
one night. That was it. That was all it was supposed to be. And we just had so much fun doing it that we kept getting together and continuing the story and kept going and kept going. And then, yeah, and then it just took off. Felicia Day over at Geek and Sundry asked if we would come on her Twitch channel and, and play some Dungeons and Dragons online. And we said yes, and it, it just kept going. Well, it's certainly taken off. And I think if we were to look back maybe 10 years, Dungeons and Dragons would be a very uh, nerdy thing to do, but it's become almost common practice. It's a lot more popular conventionally now than it ever was before. Why do you think that is? Yeah. I think, you know, geekdom has just become more pop culture at this point, you know, with the, the rise of all of the comic book movies and superhero franchises. Um, people are embracing that that joy and that imagination that they loved so much when they were kids. And suddenly it's it's normal to want to have fun like that. Um, and I think it's so great that more and more people are playing it. It's so funny, even five years ago when we would talk about um, oh, well, tonight we're going to go play our Dungeons and Dragons game. I'll get some looks, you know, and people would, like, kind of laugh at us and go, oh, that sounds fun, that sounds weird. And now, I'm like, oh, yeah, Dungeons and Dragons, I'm getting a game for Um, Yeah, it's just people are, people are embracing it. Well, speaking... Things like Stranger Things and, and stuff like that has, has brought it more and more, you know, popular, mainstream... Yeah, it certainly has. And I mean, speaking of embracing sort of, you know, geekdom in, in, pop, in pop culture, you're appearing at Supernova Convention in, uh, in Adelaide and Brisbane this November. What's enticing to you about coming out and meeting the fans? Well, I uh, came to Australia about, oh gosh, it was like seven years ago. It probably was more than that. Um, so it's been a long time since I've gotten to see any fans out there, and I'm so excited to see, you know, not just say hi to them, but to find out what, you know, they're fans of, because there's so many different projects that I've, I've had, you know, the opportunity to work on. So um, it's funny, depending on the area that you go to, um, certain things are more popular with people. Um, so I'm really excited to see what uh, the fans there are interested in. Well, we are certainly looking forward to having you back here in Australia. All the best with the rest of the amazing work that you do, and I'm sure people are going to love meeting you in person in November at Supernova. Thanks for coming on the show today. I cannot wait. Thank you so much. That was my chat with Laura Bailey. Now, here's my interview with Brian Herring. Enjoy! Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today, Brian. No, thanks for having me. Cheers. Now, what inspired you to work in the entertainment industry? Well, um, I kind of grew up around it. My mother worked um, as a wardrobe mistress in our in our theatre when um, when I was very very young, and I kind of got involved in amateur theatre, and I did that for for some years, and then I just thought, well, I should probably do that as a job then. And um, sort of went off and studied a bit and then just went to work, really. And I, I kind of blundered from one job to the next and then sort of found myself in puppetry completely by accident. Um, and then it all sort of took off, really. 
So after working in, in various jobs within the entertainment industry, how did you go about training yourself to become one of the most iconic puppeteers in England? Oh, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, um, well, I, what happened was I lied at an audition for a TV show. Uh, there used to be a TV show in England called Spitting Image, which was um, a political satire show that ran for about 10, 15 years. Um, and I found myself at an audition through a very odd set of circumstances, and I told them I'd done puppets before. I, I told them I'd worked on a tour of Little Shop of Horrors, which wasn't a strictly a lie, as Little Shop of Horrors had come through our local theatre and I'd moved the scenery. Um, and they said, well, this is a bit different, and they told me what I would have to do, and they kind of, kind of coached me through this audition. And they took me on as a trainee, um, and then six weeks later I was on television, um, I was lucky, though, that I was working as a, a sort of an assistant puppeteer to some of the best puppeteers in the country. Um, and off the back of that, I wound up as a, as a professional puppeteer. Have you ever sort of looked back and gone, how on earth did I get here? Because those are certainly some strange circumstances to fall into the, the industry. I definitely, definitely looked back and thought, how did I get here? Um, particularly in the last four years. Uh, it's, you know, I've, I've had a few highlights along the way. I mean, I got to do... Uh, I, I got to work on a, on a Hellboy movie, which I was always a big fan of the comic. Um, I got to do a, 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 an Alien movie with Ridley Scott, which was, you know, a fairly big deal for me. Uh, I did the Olympic opening ceremony for 2012 in London, and that was kind of cool. But then when you suddenly find yourself on a Star Wars set and up to your neck in that, you do go, well, how did you get here? And I, I, I honestly couldn't say. I suppose it's probably, I don't know, 30% talent and 70% luck, I think. But right place at the right time. And, and generally, I've been plugging away at it for a while. But, yeah, I, I, am, I am as surprised as many people who know me that I've ended up doing what I'm doing. Um, although, having been a Star Wars fan for 40-odd years, uh, I'm also not surprised I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, it was almost sort of predestined. And that's a really ridiculous thing to say. But I did get a, a school report when I was about oh, about 10, that said that my obsession with Star Wars would lead me nowhere and I should really concentrate on my academic studies. And I wish I had that. I put that in a frame. Oh, that's that's ironic. Well, as, as such a fan of Star Wars, that first day on set for you, what was that like? So I assume Harrison Ford and a lot of the original cast would have been around at some point while you were working. Well, yes. I mean, the first day, actually, I think for everybody, was we kind of eased our way into that. It wasn't... The the big moment for me came, I think, around about the fifth week, fifth, sixth week, because we shot that movie chronologically, give or take. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd already done all the stuff in Abu Dhabi in the desert, so we'd gone through the heat. We'd gone through the hard stuff, because that was very, very difficult shooting out in Abu Dhabi. And then we'd gone through and done some stuff on the um, on the Star Destroyer, and then we'd gone on to the Millennium Falcon set, which was fairly you know, fairly awesome to say the least. But it wasn't until Harrison Ford came to work on his first day, and we were standing in the in the, in the set of the Falcon, and I had my delightful green nylon onesie that I would wear while I was operating BB-8 because I'm. I'm for the most part, I'm standing about four feet behind BB-8, operating him with rods, and I'm digitally removed afterwards. And Harrison arrived at work, came up the ramp in his full hands up outfit with his big hairy friend. And he looked me up and down and just went, who picked that look, kid? And just walked off. 
and you suddenly go, oh, great, I've just, I've just met Indiana Jones. And he's, you know, he's, he's making, making snide comments about my outfit. But then we got into the bones of the scene, and you saw, I suddenly went, oh, my God, I'm in Star Wars. Because it was in the Millennium Falcon, and it was, there was Han Solo and Chewbacca. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was an amazing moment. It certainly would have been. Now, at what point do you start to get input into the puppet as the person who's performing it? So when did you start working with BB-8? I, well, I was on The Force Awakens for 16 months, and I was hired by Neil Scanlon, um, who Neil uh, won his Oscar for Babe, the uh, film about the sheep pig, mm. and he's the head of the creature shop down there, and we'd worked together on Prometheus. And he'd hired me as the puppetry consultant because we'd got on on Prometheus, and I'd come up, you know, come up with a few ways of being the way I thought we should do some stuff. And he brought me on board, and I started off doing not BB-8 because BB-8 wasn't actually within our remit at that point. And then, it, then it arrived. It came over from special effects to us, I think. Um, and there were a few. There's a very clever engineer who works with Neil called Josh Lee, and um, I sort of call him BB-8's dad because he came up with the way he thought we could make it work. And the first version he did was a, 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 was the puppet version, which is the one we use for most most of the shots in the movie. But um, he kind of gave me, he built a little sort of one-foot puppet, about 12 inches high, as I said, and um, I did a couple of little character studies with that. And then that rolled out to become seven different versions of, of BB-8. I would kind of say what, what kind of working positions I wanted to work in, and Neil would say, well, that might work or that might not. So there was a bit of give and take here and there on it. But for the most part, the, the design guys would, and the design guys and the engineers were the, were the people who pretty much did it. And then I, I take what I get and make we make a couple of adjustments occasionally to sort of mainly operational stuff. I did at one point I did say that the eye, if you ever look at a picture of BB-8, um, there's a, a, an orange strip that runs around the top of his head, underneath the um, the, the silver part of his dome, and the eye cuts across the orange bit. And it didn't used to, but I had the eye moved up by about an inch because when standing next to it, I realised it was so small that if I wanted him to look at anybody, I'd have to pull his head back all the time. And if your head's pulled back all the time and you ever need to pull your head back, you can't because it's you've got nowhere to go. Mm. So just by moving his eye up an inch, you kind of gave the impression that he looked up at the world so you could still have full movement on the head. And it would make sense within the world it was lived in. That was really the only aesthetic input I had onto the puppet but it was it was a lot of it came from uh, a chap in London called Jake Lunt Davis who did you know pretty much the whole look of him along with JJ Abrams and Neil they uh, they kind of found his face and the panels and all that kind of stuff but I would I would get some say little, little pieces the behavior was really myself and Dave Chapman who's the uh, puppeteer I work with on this he we, we came up with BB-8's sort of personality and his uh, vocabulary of movement and how you know, we feel he would react to situations. A lot of it's in the script, but um, the timing is pretty much mine. Well, that would be fascinating to to create that character. And I mean, he's iconic now in the Star Wars universe, and for you as a fan, that'd be uh, amazing. But um, when it comes to using a puppet over CGI or animatronics, is there a reason that I mean, Star Wars with a with a budget like it has, why why did they choose to use a puppet? Hmm. Well, for start, I mean, J.J. wanted to make a sequel to Return of the Jedi like it was 1985. So he wanted to go back 
to maybe a a more um, tactile and real kind of feel than maybe the prequels had. And he he really wanted to get back to the things that he'd responded to as a kid, which was that kind of dirty, lived-in universe, and knowing things were there on the day. So he wanted to go with that. Now, what BB-8 is, is a triumph of every tool in the box, because there's physical puppetry, there's animatronic puppetry, because even the animatronic ones, you know, I, I, I performed a, a whole bunch of that stuff as well. Uh, along with Dave Chapman and Matt Denton as well, we, we we all get stuck into that that stuff. And then there's a digital version of it as well. I mean, there, there are shots in The Force Awakens where BB-8 is solely digital. And there was one of them, I couldn't tell if it was me or not, and it turned out to be digital. What we tend to do is I always lay down a reference pass for the ILM guys. So a physical BB-8 would have run through any given shot at any given time so that they can get the lighting reference and how deep it sits in the sand and what happens if it hits a bump and that kind of, that kind of thing. So they've got all the reference they need and they can go away and animate that. So what we now use is there's not there's no particular version, there's no definitive version of it. Each different version is the best version for the shot we're doing. So there are points where they just go, there's no way you can do this, we'll do it with CGI. And there's other points where they will go, we've got to do this with the puppet because it, you know it's going to work the best. You can get a very very subtle performance out of the, which is fundamentally a rod puppet, which is one we use quite a lot. Um, so they, they, we'll pick we'll pick whichever one is whichever technique is best for the shots. That's great. I, I love that JJ was so dedicated to getting the feel of the original trilogy, which is obviously some of the, some of the best sci-fi cinema out there. But he he did he did the first one, The Force Awakens, and he's doing the last one. But mm-hmm. you've got a different director mm-hmm. uh, for the middle for the uh, the eighth film. So did mm-hmm. did this new director have the same vision when it came to BB-8, or did that change things up for you and your team? Uh, we pretty much I don't, I'm just trying to think what I can and can't talk about. We pretty much ran it the same way we did before. I mean, Ryan came in and he he'd obviously seen it and he liked it. He had, he liked BB-8's comedy, so he he played the comedy chops, and and there's I think he said at Celebration, BB-8 is sort of the Buster Keaton of this movie, so he really liked the fact that he could do fun stuff with BB-8, and that an audience will just go along with it because it's BB-8 and it's fun, um, and I I think he's got some really really lovely stuff in this film. Uh, Ryan is, is is very very different from from JJ, but just as great you know he's he came into an, you know an, an existing team and he led it from the front and, he, and i think what he's made is is phenomenal you know it's 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 it's, it's gonna i think people aren't expecting what they're gonna get it's 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 really really good <laughs> well i'm certainly looking forward to it as i'm sure are all of our listeners now you did mention the star wars celebration which is a convention when you started doing mm-hmm. events like that to promote star wars uh, how does that feel? Because there are thousands and thousands of people at those events who just idolise the work that you do. Well, it was strange we could, because when I did the first one, I, well, I did the first one as a guest in, where are we now? It's, what is it, 2015? Uh, 2015. Or 26, I, I can't remember now. We were in the middle of Rogue One. We were in the middle of 
It was last year. It was last year. <laughs> because what, we, what had happened, we'd already made The Force Awakens. So The Force Awakens, we'd finished. We'd made Rogue One. We'd finished that. Then The Force Awakens came out, and we were in the middle of making Episode Eight, and I hadn't been out on one of these things yet because I'd been too busy to go to any, and The Force Awakens was then out. And I went out on Neil's. Neil invited me to come sit on his uh, Creatures, uh, Creatures panel in the big room, and Warwick Davis was presenting. There was about 5,000 people in the room. And I went out and I introduced myself, and the place went up, and I was like, oh, okay, that's how this is now. I mean, big crowds don't bother me. I've done theatre. I was involved in the, um, in the Olympic opening ceremony here in 2012. So I don't mind a big room, but it's, but it's a big room full of Star Wars fans, and they're, they are um, they're, they're definitely a bunch. They're definitely a group of people. And, I, and having been one, because the weird thing about going to Celebration in London um, last year was the last time I was there, I was there, I'd bought a ticket and gone as a fan. Oh, wow. So it, it's, yeah, it's very, very odd sitting on the other side of the table, but very lovely. And, I, and it's something I don't take for granted at all because it's, um, it, the, the, this is, I think this has been the, the oddest thing is I collect, I collect film memorabilia. I got signed, signed posters in, you know, up in the house. Mm. So when somebody puts a, po- a Force Awakens poster in front of me with Harrison Ford's signature on it and Carrie Fisher's signature and Mark Hamill's signature, and they ask me to sign it, that's a big deal for me. And I also understand what a big deal it is for them because I know how difficult those signatures have been to get. So it's very important not to screw up their poster as far as I'm concerned because it's probably going up on their wall. Um, but, yeah, those those things, they're, they're, I love them. I really enjoy them. I can't wait. You know, the, the, the supernova thing is going to be such a laugh because I've not been to Australia before, and I can't wait. You know, I can't wait to, to, to see what Australian Star Wars fans are like. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of them, and you are coming to Supernova Brisbane and Adelaide at the end of November here in Australia, so it's our summer, so uh, bring shorts. Well, about to be our summer anyway. Um, so watch yes. out for the hot weather. But it's been lovely to talk to you today, Brian, and all the best and um, you. With, the, with the new Star Wars film, and I know that we can't wait to see it. Benjamin, thank you very much. That was my chat with Brian Herring. Once again, thanks to Supernova. A link to their convention website is in the show notes of the podcast. Now, as always, we've got a whole lot of movie reviews over on the movie reviews section of the website. And thanks, as always, to our supporters, Palace Nova Cinemas and Mad Zombie Collectibles. Now, I was very lucky, thanks to the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, to check out their performance of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone accompanied live by the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. Now, the ASO is one of the world's greatest orchestras, and Harry Potter is an iconic film with an even more iconic score by John Williams. It was conducted masterfully and really gave the brass section of the orchestra a chance to stand out, which I think is rare in cinematic scoring. My one complaint was that when they removed the music uh, from the actual film, which was screened on a, on a projector above the orchestra, uh, the dialogue became a lot quieter. Uh, which meant the film had to be subtitled, which wasn't the case with a performance of Lord of the Rings a few years ago that I saw also with the ASO. So obviously the subtitles did compensate for the lack of dialogue volume, but it would have been nice if you could hear the dialogue as loud as it was in the film alongside the brilliant accompaniment from our orchestra. Now, unfortunately, that only played for one performance, but the ASO has Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, the second instalment, in the iconic Harry Potter film franchise playing next April and the very first Star Wars movie, Star Wars A New Hope. 
playing next July. Now, again, both of those have scores by John Williams, who is an incredible composer and has had a record number of Oscar nominations for his work. And hearing an orchestra such as ours bring those scores to life with the films on the big screen will be fantastic. So I do encourage you to head over to the ASO website and get tickets now for those two events before they sell out. Well, I've been your host, Benjamin Mamakay. Thanks to our fantastic guest, Andrew Supernova, and to the ASO. We'll be back later in the month with another exciting episode. See you then.